0: Good day, gentle listener. Paul McLaughlin here with you, McLaughlin at work, with episodes from the world of management, leadership, and employment. We bring them to you with great gusto and interest because we're interested in the subject matter, we're interested in the people we speak with. Today we have a double bill, as is our want. First is, first, what's it all about? First today is about strategic and personal coaching. I'll break them up that way to be uh, artificial, if you will. Our first guest is Erica Anderson. She is the author of a book entitled Being Strategic, and she's going to tell you why she thought that was an important title. She's got a story to tell, and the way she tells it is compelling, interesting, and enthralling. And perhaps more to me, the way she wrote her book was how she presents herself. And that will be part of the discussion today. Uh, The value of books, the value of learning from whatever source, the value of coaching as espoused by Erica Anderson. And second, Susan Steinbrecher who who had written a book entitled Heart-Centered Leadership, which says something in and of itself, an invitation to lead from the inside out and more recently has joined with others in a compendium uh, for a roadmap to success. America's top intellectual minds map out successful business strategies and we'll have a chance to talk to Susan and her style and her approach. A little bit different from Erica's but perhaps the message here is particularly in this world of individual or corporate coaching that there is a style and a interaction and a chemistry required between coach and the person being coached, often hired by the company to uh, speak to this person or persons. Uh, And it is in that chemistry that a lot of the value, in my opinion, uh, comes to the fore. And you'll hear that through a microphone, although they are both coaches and also active uh, authors brings me to the point of um, electronic reading, e-reading. I'm a convert, if you will, if somebody can be converted quickly to the um, e-books. doesn't make any difference what kind one gets. I'm not promoting one brand or other. I'm speaking about the concept of how we get our information. We enjoy talking to people here on McLaughlin at work. It is our metier, our staff, our stuff of life. We think that the voice is way the way one really conveys what needs to be conveyed, although it doesn't go much further than the listener, which is why people take to other means, blogging the internet. And uh brings us back to, in this case, the Amazon Kindle. Had an interesting impact when I read it because at first I picked it up to see what it would do to my reading habits. My good colleague here On webtechradio.net, Brad Saul indicated it would change my reading habits, and I would say even as after less than a week, it certainly has. And it has an interesting, for me, an interesting um, footnote in that somebody said, no, I don't care to read the newspaper on it because um, it doesn't show the same way as the front page, and I compare that to some of our younger colleagues entering the business world who no longer read the newspaper but get virtually all their information online uh, that's tailored to them, I decided to try a subscription to the New York Times, uh, reading it over the Kindle, and it has a remarkable effect. One is that since the information is not displayed exactly the same way as a newspaper, you can go through an index without having to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous direction that the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or your local newspaper would have you go from front page to back pages to what they think is important and uh, you may agree with them and then wait eagerly to see page one or you may want just the news. So the first observation is that it allows you to go through an index and while you are relying on the news that they put on the index, It is not nearly as, um, you are not nearly as a reader directed to what they think is important. Perhaps also because of that, you have a tendency to flick through the entire index rather than stopping in the middle uh, or the first um, few pages of the newspaper thinking that that which is buried below is of significantly less value. So you really see headlines in a way that I had not viewed daily headlines before. Another factor is portability and accessibility, very quick to turn on, get to where you want to go, review, read a couple of pages or excerpts, and then move on. If you're somebody who consumes the paper in the morning, you may find that that portability is not as important a feature. But I think many of us are moving so quickly from client to client or from issue to issue with our business life that the ability to not necessarily to have to watch somebody on television, but to read about it at your own time, at your own leisure, is in some measure a time saver, but also allows to fill in a lot of dead spots um, that otherwise might exist. For those of you who are voracious readers and consumers of information, I think the uh, Kindle or the Sony or the new other Samsung, I believe is coming out with something by the end of the week, uh, excuse me, the end of the year. Um, any of these will provide the same kind of mechanism, although you may get used to one or another just as you get used to a newspaper. And third, perhaps for your consideration is merely the fact that those who are, are absorbing information all the time, that the e-reader is clearly a piece of the future. It's what the, if you will, the next generation, We'll get their information this way, downloaded, not on a piece of paper. I think we'll look back with, as they did in New York City, thinking at the turn of the century, that's the 19th century, going into the 20th, that the number of horses in New York and the amount of horse provender that had to be swept off the streets would bring the city to its knees could not be accounted for. I think we're going to look back on the newspapers and print in much the same way it will not take the place of all printed material there is a tactile there is a memory there is a smell to a page that a Kindle can never give off you don't remember when the the where you were when you read it like the Kennedy assassination or the Challenger disaster or any of the things that we are linked in time with what we were doing at the time I don't think reading a book in electronic means is going to provide that nor is it a scrapbook, nor is it a page you can pull out and frame, but it's part of the reading future. It's part of the way the new generation is going to get its information and it's the way some books are going to be read for their content much like there are some authors who are better listened to because that is exactly how they best convey their information. With that little ramble about the Kindle, and I'll keep you informed about how what I'm doing and what I think of it, because I think it's one of the tools of uh, management, business, leadership, and employment, getting information, and here's another way you get it, straight from the author's and the coach's mouth. First, Erica Anderson being strategic, and secondly, Susan Steinbrecher, the roadmap to success. Thanks for joining me, and without further ado, McLaughlin at work. Being strategic, important subject today because I'm not sure what being strategic is all about. Let's start off with Erica. What is being strategic?
1: That is a wonderful question. That's the essential question. It's uh, uh, when I speak to large groups about being strategic, I often start by saying, okay, how many of you have been in a meeting in the last couple of months where somebody used the phrase being strategic as in we're not being strategic enough or we should really be more strategic about this? almost every hand in the audience goes up, and then I say, okay, in that meeting, how often did the person who used that phrase explain what they meant about it? No hands go up. You know, there's never an explanation. And I think it's because we assume we all know what we mean, but we don't all have the same meaning. Like if I say to you, I'm embarrassed, you and I pretty much have the same idea what we're talking about mm-hmm. being strategic. In fact, once I was with a group and just, just for fun. I, I started by saying, okay, you know, we're going to focus on how to be more strategic. And then I said, okay, before we get into it, w- without talking to each other, I'd like each one of you to write down what you think it means to be strategic. And there were 12 people, and there were, in effect, 11 different definitions. One, one, there was a little overlap. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make much sense, since we talk about it all the time. Right.
0: right. And particularly in what you have found from your practice, because this book evolved from yes. the practice you are in. Maybe yes. you could just spend a minute with that, too. Put your bona fides on in the
1: microphone. <laughs> well, um, how, how can you
0: How can you write about this? What right do you <laughs> what have? What right do what I, what I have to <laughs> talk
1: about this? Well, um, I'm the founding partner of a company called Proteus International that's been in business since 1990. And from the very beginning, one of the things that we've... Well, our core mission is to help people, help organizations get clear about, clarify, and move toward their hope for future. And so we have a, a process, and approach for doing that. And um, it's... Founded based on what I understand being strategic means, and as I went about my business, have gone about my business for the last thirty years, and have watched leaders who people seem to agree were strategic and were successful. I noticed that they, almost without exception, did one thing, which I came to think of as, oh, this is what being strategic means. So how I define it in the book is that being strategic means to consistently focus on those core directional choices that will best move you toward your hope for future. And when you think about people who are really successful, whether it's, you know, Oprah Winfrey or Steve Jobs or, you know, they do that. They clarify for themselves. They figure out where they're actually starting from.
0: (laughs) An important, an important (laughs) important ground. These these GPSs that we have on the car (laughs) always have the key ingredient of starting out where you is.
1: Exactly. And that is a key ingredient. In fact, I I don't want to run too far afield, but recently I was on the early show, I was talking about this, and I said, you know, we, a lot of us watch American Idol. American Idol is one of my guilty pleasures. Sure, absolutely. And the most fascinating people on American Idol are the people who literally cannot sing. They can't sing. They can't carry a tune. And they really think they're going to be the American Idol. It's such a great example of needing to be accurate about where you're starting from, right? right. So you get accurate about that. And then you say, this is the future I want to create for myself. Then you need to make what I call core directional choices which is how I define strategies what are those big pathways those intentional pathways you're gonna walk down to get to that future and people who can make that determination and then consistently focus on it and as leaders get other people with them focusing on it those are the people who tend to achieve their dreams
0: what one of the uh, how to how to put this one of the problems that I have with books or concepts not, this is not str- specific to you, but on uh, on the concept of being strategic is whether the examples that you gave were people who did this early in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find people who have uh, various skills that have allowed them to become senior elements in their business. If strategy, if being strategic and, and not having uh, those core values or core uh, insights as to where they want to go. Are you comfortable that somebody, either by reading your book, and I want to get back to the book versus the person teaching, can somebody become strategic?
1: Boy, that is a wonderful question and my answer is yes. I mean that's one of the things that I got excited about a number of years ago and ultimately I think why I wrote the book, which is that people tend to even though they don't agree on what it means, <laughs> people tend to talk about being strategic as though it's a congenital <laughs> ability. You know, it's Inability like... ability
0: or flaw. I- exactly,
1: <laughs> that y- it's like you have blue eyes, they'll never be green. You know, you're short, mm-hmm. you'll never be tall. You're not strategic, you'll never be... St- and, and fortunately... If you're not
0: good at math, you'll never be good at math. Exactly. And that, that may, be, <laughs> that may, that be, may true, be true, actually.
1: Um, but what I found is that being strategic is primarily a learnable set of skills. It's an approach and a set of mental skills and then I think that the reason people think it's not learnable is because they don't. That no one's, I won't say no one. People have not, for the most part, tried to break it down and teach it in that way, which is the focus of this book. Let's take it apart. Let's make it learnable. You know, and of course, and and you
0: do have a workbook concept in this. Oh, I mean, absolutely. There are fill-in-the-blanks about yep, this, fill this in book. The blanks, so try it one out. looking at the uh, at the frontispiece may not get that point, but we want to make that point to p- to listeners.
1: Absolutely. The point, when I sat down to write this book, I thought to myself, and I've s- I said it in the introduction of the book, at the end of this book, I want you to feel like you understand what it means to be strategic, you know why it's important, and you feel capable of doing it. That's, that's my goal. So that, to me, means transfer the skill. And I think, uh, I, think I did it. I think if someone well, really reads this book, be better Well, I think you did it, too.
0: Um, and I think part of it, which people might miss, is that it's a storybook. Yeah, and and tell me what the story, what how you build this story.
1: It is a storybook. Um, I love stories. Stories are so powerful. I think we as human beings are wired to learn best when there's a story element. You know, from thousands of years ago, being around the campfire when we're little and our parents read us stories. And, and now s- we do audio interviews. And now we do audio interviews, to, uh, and uh, we're telling our yeah. stories, right? Um,
0: What's your story? Well, no, the story in the book. My
1: story in the book is, and and there's an interesting little spooky. Corollary, which I'll tell you at the end. But um, when I, when we do this work with people, we often visualize the process for them by using this kind of metaphor of a castle on a hill. We say, okay, so the, the problem you're trying to solve, the challenge you're trying to address, is the hill you're trying to climb. So let's define that first. What, what hill are you actually trying to climb? And then where you're starting from is X marks the spot. We draw an X. We say the vision you want to create is a castle on the hill. We draw the castle. Now, you need to get from X marks the spot to the castle on the hill. There are trolls. On the hill you have to get past those so let's figure out those pathways those strategies that are going to get you there and then the tactics are just the blocks that you use to build the path with Mm -hmm. it's a great simple visual and it's pretty accurate so it's very helpful and it simplifies the process of vision and strategy in such a way that even if somebody came in thinking it's arcane and you know this is why they hire strategic planning people who aren't me when they look at that visual they go okay so i thought well it'd be great to have a frame story for the book of an actual castle being built on the hill and um as you know since you've looked at the book there's uh the castle i use is a castle called Criccieth castle in northwest wales and i love wales i have always felt a real connection to it and that particular castle i'm very attracted to and the guy that built Do you it, have
0: ancestry that takes you back there or just well interest?
1: that's i'll tell you that oh, in a minute. i never thought i didn't think i did i thought i was you know uh, like most people, a kind of North American mutt, you know, just German, and who knows, you know, why, I don't even know. <laughs> Wandered out of the Androscoggin <laughs> Woods, I, exactly, <laughs> looking
0: for New York City.
1: Precisely, um, and uh, the guy that built it was this fascinating guy named Llewellyn Up Irworth. And his nickname. How did you
0: determine how? Because I, uh, I noticed in the book, I, I started in the back and found him, and then yes. worked my way up to the front yeah. piece, and found that um, you gave a phonetic. Yes. I, I'm always interested in, in this ancestry. Is how you determined? Obviously, you went there or yeah. heard somebody speak about him. How did you get Thwelen that? Well, well
1: I'm I'm learning to speak Welsh. Oh, so I, I know how the words in Welsh are pronounced, and it's a just a fascinating language. Could
0: you give his name again?
1: Thwelen. Up your
0: Okay. And what's his story?
1: Well, his story is, his nickname is Llewellyn Waur, which means Llewellyn the Great. And he was was in the 13th century, and he really had a powerful vision. Wales at that time was just a bunch of little teeny fiefdoms, kind of warring fiefdoms. And he really wanted a united Wales. And he united all of North Wales against very you know the norman english and the saxons and the irish and everybody he really he the power of his vision was such that he was actually able to bring these very contentious welsh guys together now throughout to put his put long that, life
0: to put that in perspective because you quoted uh, or, or recognized uh, idol for those people who watched the tutors <laughs> you're, you're a couple hundred <laughs> years before the tutors yes, so exactly. you can realize what what rough circumstances you're talking exactly Killer, be killed
1: it, precisely and and for him to pull these guys together, Welsh people are very independent, very contentious, and he pulled them together, and, and this vision of United Wales was compelling enough that they all went along with him, and he died in his mid-60s, which is a good long life by 13th century standards. still the Prince of North Wales. I mean, he brought this together for like 40 years, and I thought, okay, this guy is a good example of being strategic. And
0: did he die of natural causes? He
1: did, <laughs> in his bed at Aberconway, which is amazing, you know. So when he was a fairly young man, he decided to build this castle at Krikiath. And it's strategically a beautiful place to build a castle. It's on a headland overlooking the sea. It has 360 degree rate. You can see to the sea. You can see to the mountains. It's, um, there's just one little spit of land on the northern side where you could you know, pretty much kill off anybody who's trying to get you from that side. And so I researched it as much as I could to find out the story. And then I just kind of filled in the blanks the rest so that's the story and as you know every chapter i um well as i know but your potential
0: readers this is you use him as an example and the castle on the hill is the metaphor that you translate into being strategic
1: precisely and at the beginning of every chapter i have a little piece of Llewellyn and his various guys and how they overcame problems and how they work through each step of this model of being strategic Now, so all this happened, this was a, you know, I finished the book over a year and a half ago. Then about six months ago, I got on Ancestry.com. I don't know if you've ever I I do know it. It's addictive and fascinating. It is. And I wove my way back, back, back. And starting at about 1500, I started finding all this Welsh ancestry. And I was so happy because it gave me some rationale for being so attracted to Wales. Went back, back, back. Well, it turns out that this guy is my 26 times great-grandfather. Truly. Truly, and twice, because he was married to a Welsh woman, and he was also married to a woman called Joan, who was the illegitimate daughter of King John of England, Mm -hmm. and I have ancestors that are descendants of both of those wives. Isn't that crazy?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're not exactly sure which line it goes down, (laughs) the more more predominant (laughs) line. But, no, as a a diversion, um, I, too, have worked with Ancestry.com, um, and we perhaps we're almost kin separated by the ocean. It turns out that um one of my direct descendants was uh the pirate queen.
1: Uh, wow.
0: And uh Grace O'Malley.
1: Yeah. Who was
0: uh in who met with Elizabeth the First,
1: which yes. is what, one of the people oh, about that in 1593, uh, in
0: fifteen fifteen ninety three, yeah. I think so. Uh interesting and, and it really let it lends um to your book on being strategic, it it does does lend a context, I think, Mm. for people's lives, which is, your book is meant as a business book, if you will, but it's applicable to people who are building a life story and a life career, is that fair?
1: Absolutely, and in fact, It is a business book. That's my, as you say, bona fides. That's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. But when we were, one of the things that your listeners may find interesting is I really try to practice what I preach. And one of the things I love about having worked with St. Martin's is that uh, my editor, Phil Revson, who is a lovely, lovely man, uh, as soon as we accepted their offer on the book, my agent and I, he called me up and said, let's use the process in the book to plan for the book. So my book team, which was me, my editor, my agent, my publicist, we sat down together and went through this and created vision and strategy for the book and decided how to do the marketing and according to the process of the book. So that was really wonderful. and
0: Truly self-fulfilling.
1: Exactly. And one of the things we talked about in our team was is that because they all saw the broad applicability of this and they said, you know, do we position this as a business book or as a personal self-help book? And we decided to... Position as a business book because that is my background, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the publicity that's come about as a result of it, and a lot of the uh, interest has been people saying, Wow, I can use this approach to create the career I want, create the life I want. And it's like, Yes, this is really, it's like a Swiss Army knife. You know, it's very universal.
0: Um, It it brings me back to one of the questions that I wanted to ask and, and was looking through uh... both the book and some of the comments uh, about it and and uh, one that was on the sheet uh, provided about the book is uh, was a quote that said you and referring here to erica anderson who's my guest here on mclaughlin at work paul mclaughlin with you um, the quote was you speaking about erica have a wonderful gift and talent for taking the essence of things and expressing them in a simple yet powerful way um, a, a, book is, uh, a book is a book, learning is learning, but how many of us have reflected back on teachers who taught us as opposed to the material itself? Hmm. Um, and, I, and I wonder whether in being strategic, while the book is powerful and well put together and, and credible because the castles were built mm-hmm. in part, I wonder whether something like this is only as good as somebody understanding Erica and Anderson.
1: Oh, it's a very fair question. Well, I do think it's um at the risk of sounding horribly self-aggrandizing, it is it is like ripples, you know, from a stone dropped in a pond. I I suspect that um the the clearest and uh the clearest version of this and the biggest transfer of learning probably does happen when people are, you know, in a session that I run or, or talking to me. Or
0: hear, or hear your voice. Or
1: hear my voice or listen to me. So that oral history or around yeah. the campfire. is it, very important. That doesn't important. lend
0: itself to a written blog.
1: Exactly. It's very important. But the, the second um, ring out from that stone, which I think is almost equally big, is that I have business partners. I have my business partner, we have consultants who are also learning this process, who can also teach and talk about this process. So that's also, I think, a very powerful way to do it. And then it gets increasingly maybe less powerful, but still useful. And my my reason for writing the book is, you know, I'm going to be able to touch a certain number of people in my life, and hopefully many, And but I want, I really think this is a powerful understanding that there is something real called being strategic that it's an incredibly useful life capability and i just wanted to get as much about it to as many people as i could that's really why i wrote the book that hopefully there are thousands of people who will never hear me never hear my voice never meet me who will still be better able to organize and achieve their dreams perhaps as a result of having read the book that's why i did it
0: and uh it, it lends itself to the following question why did you decide putting to put if strategic is such an awkward word, my word awkward, mm-hmm. um, why put it on the title?
1: Because it's what people know. You know, if I if I called it something else, people wouldn't see the book and think about this. You know, it, it's it's the thing I said at the very beginning of the interview. Every I almost everyone has heard that word in a meeting in the last, you know, six months and we use it all the time. It's in the common lexicon. And, in fact, in the introduction of the book, I said, should we just, like, stop saying it and maybe it'll go away? No, it's already here. Let's figure out what it really can be. Because the essence, even if you get 12 different definitions, the essence of what people are saying is it's a way to really organize toward the future. It's a way to create a better version of whatever it is we're trying to create. And I wanted to leverage off of that, clarify it, give people some skills around it.
0: The castles were built centuries ago. People could use that also uh, as imagery for what we had prior to 2008 were castles in the sky that were built that mm-hmm. have now fallen down. Yeah. Um, the book clearly was written in a time that is different from now. Pick mm-hmm. your pick your difference, but yeah. it's different. Yep. It clearly is relevant because strategic is relevant. But what is the nuance about the book that makes it more better now than... It might have been had it come out uh, September fourteenth, right. two thousand and eight, right. which oh. now seems so long seems ago. For like goodness, and years we're coming up on know, the first anniversary, <laughs> and we're know. seeing books come out about it. <laughs> what really happened, and what we're finding, it, it is it's not in the numbers. Maybe it comes right. back to my my point about how do you learn to be strategic? Yes. How, how, do you remember your teacher, or do you remember the material? Uh, but give us your thoughts. On the difference in being strategic, where following this, if somebody had read this book mm-hmm. and followed your dicta in 2006 and seven, presumably they would not have fallen victim.
1: I I hope that's true. I'd like to think it's true. What I've noticed over the last couple of years, especially over the last year, is that more and more of our practice is clients wanting to do this process with us wanting to do the vision strategy process with us and what i see is people are saying um okay i better be really clear now that i'm operating in a sustainable way that the future that i'm conceiving of for my business is really achievable and that i'm being very clear about my current state and about the obstacles that face me and i think that's actually it's a wonderful question and i've been talking about a lot lately that actually Being strategic, I see as being a great antidote to fear, because what happens when we get afraid, psychologically and physiologically, is that we just hunker down. It's like we jump in a hole and pull the covers over our heads. And, you know, if you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger, that's probably a good thing to do: find a hole, jump in it, pull the, you know, whatever. But the dangers facing us are so much more complex and so much more, so much less unilateral than the dangers that our bodies are meant to run from that it, it's really not a good approach and if so, we could
0: only find that little isolated headland wouldn't that, that has be great, one, thin, one one, one, one saber-tooth th- tiger funny, you know wandering down the road you exactly, take them out and you're safe
1: exactly so um what i've noticed is that instead of that fear reaction which is hunker down stop spending don't do anything if you can get strategic which is take a step back take a deep breath. Be accurate about your current state. Don't give up your dreams. Be accurate about where you're trying to go, and then figure it. It allows you to kind of expand your horizons in a realistic way, to create reasonable aspirations, and then keep moving toward them. And I'll give you a great historical example of this. I, um, CNBC asked me to do a guest blog a couple of months ago, and I used um, some examples from GE, which is a client of ours, but I used a historical example too. In the in the Depression, in the Great Depression. Um Post and Kellogg. The Great Depression. The Great Depression, as opposed to our mini depression. Thank you. Um the uh in the 30s. Post and Kellogg were the two biggest US cereal companies. And they were had been running about neck and neck for decades. And when the depression hit, Post went the fear route. They hunkered down, they slashed spending, they just said, Okay, we're just gonna, you know, be small for the duration, and they just uh that's that's what they did. No new spending, no new development. Kellogg said, okay we are going to be very clear, but we're going to grow. So they cut all extraneous spending, they closed a couple of plants, but they really heavily invested in both R&D and advertising. And they brought some new products on the market that are still on the market today. They got clear ascendancy over post and have held that for the last 70 years. So they used that opportunity to be strategic to get to become market leaders, and then they were able to stay there. So. There's a little quote on the front of the book from Bonnie Hammer who very kindly said that this is a powerful approach for navigating through tough times. And I think that's right. I think it gives you a way to navigate through tough times rather than just get paralyzed. Uh,
0: Beneath the picture of the castle on the cover is a plan for success, outthink your competitors and stay ahead of change. I'm speaking with uh, Eric Anderson, uh, Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at Work all about management leadership and employment and strategy has uh, elements in each one of those um talking with uh, erica about the notion of being strategic and how they can how it is valuable in these these difficult difficult times one of the artifices that you use in the book and i noticed that you picked a date you said you said select a date in the future and write it down I think if I have a it was March two, 2003, so it was it sort of dating ourselves by so right. not, not, not picking a, a date so it leaves the book fresh for whatever. Um, as a practical matter, how far ahead do you put, does that date go down? I know it's not a 20-year plan, yeah, yeah. and then there's five-year plans, but what is the concept, what's the, um, what's the time horizon for being strategic?
1: It can be five minutes from now, it can be 20 years from now. And when I'm doing this work, either with a group, or my colleagues are doing this uh, work with a group or with an individual, we try to get the time horizon appropriate to the complexity of the challenge. So for instance, if you're trying to envision the future of your business, we'll say, you know, go three to five years out. It's a complex challenge. You want to give yourself time to change, but you you don't want to take it so far out that it's a confounded experiment. And there are just too many variables, and you're not even going to be able to You know, I mean, at the moment, taking it ten years out, you can do some brainstorming, but there are a lot of variables ten years out. You know, you're a wise person, (laughs) right? (laughs) So three to five years for a business. Well,
0: Thwellen may have lived (laughs) to the age of sixty, but things may have looked rough when he was forty, and to look (laughs) ahead twenty years would not have built the castle keep.
1: Exactly, and then if if we're working with someone uh, who has a a more immediate challenge, you know, how can I reorganize my Department to function more effectively, we might say, let's look six months or a year out. However long it would take you to effectively make the changes of the complexity and size that you're talking about. Does that answer the question? It
0: does, and it leads me to a, a question about strategy. Sounds to be to to um, be a lit, a little um, sterile, perhaps, and uh, inhumane. Um, where where does the people? How do people play in
1: strategy? Oh, gosh. Uh, to me, it's it's all about the people. It's the second half of the book. The first half of the book is just about the process. You know, what, how do we explain this process of being strategic? What are the mental skills that's required? What are the steps you take? And then the second half of the book is how to do it with a group. Because to me, a lot of the power of this comes when you can invite other people to be strategic with you and to engage in this process together. And what I've seen when we do this with a group, it's a highly, highly collaborative process. In fact, we always say to the CEO, you're going to be a member of the group. So if you want to be a, you know, John Wayne type leader, where you say, there's the hill, now let's all go climb it.' this is not going to work for you. The way we're going to approach this is everybody is going to say, here's where we are, here's where we want to go, what's in the way, how to get there. And if they're okay with that, then it becomes A highly, highly collaborative process. And the wonderful thing about that is that everybody leaves their room at the end feeling ownership, feeling like this is my vision, these are my strategies, let's make this work. Is that one of the things
0: that may have changed from pre-2008 to as you look ahead now? And that is that people want to be more involved with leadership, if you will, because they see what happened when leadership goes amok and they follow people off the cliff?
1: Yes, that's a great insight. And in fact, I think it's just an acceleration of a process that had been happening for about the last 20 years before that. Because one of the things I've seen since you know, the beginning of my career, which is now 30 plus years, is that um, one of the big differences, I think, between the baby boomers as a generation and the next generations is that they they're not willing, these newer generations, to just salute the flag and start marching. They really want to have a say. And if if the company that they're working for is not aligned with what I recently heard somebody call their identity project, you know, mm-hmm. their own, who they want to be and what they want to accomplish, they'll go look for something else. So um, I think just in general, new, younger people are requiring a higher level of collaboration. And then I think, to your point, what has happened over the last couple of years is even a more of an impetus for that. It's like, wait a minute, we're not going to, as you say, follow somebody over the cliff, we want to have a say in this. So yes, I I absolutely agree with that. Does
0: a senior management that is of the baby boomer generation and the one immediately following, in your recent experience, have we undergone a seismic shift change in perhaps even identifying where the castle is or are we going to revert back to where we were?
1: Well, I hope we have. You know, I hope we... My, um, I'll plug another book. My younger brother, Kurt, just wrote a book. Kurt Anderson just wrote a book called Reset a, about exactly this. It just came out at the end of... Uh, and it was based on a cover story that he wrote for Time Magazine saying, you know... Um, we ran into a ditch and now there are forces that want to run us into the same ditch hundred yards further down the road. Let's <laughs> stay out of the ditch, you know? Right. And I agree. And I think that, um, I hope this book helps people. My book helps people stay out of the ditch. And I hope we're smart enough not to run into that same ditch. It's like, look, what got us there was just not being realistic about the future we could create, I mean one of the phrases I use over and over in the book is this, and I really i, I think it 's really useful it 's a reasonable aspiration. I feel like if you are clear about where you 're starting from, back to our American Idol example, and you get clear about where you want to go and it 's relative to where you 're starting from and relative to the strengths that you have at hand, then it will be a reasonable aspiration. I think a lot of what happened in the '80s and 90s is people just didn't look at what was going to be the ultimate outcome of their actions they were just looking for a short-term gain and that's not a reasonable aspiration it's not sustainable you can't make that happen forever
0: you couldn't really envision getting those blocks of granite up to the top of the hill you could see the castle up there but maybe it wasn't possible to get it done
1: say say that again i'm not sure what you
0: well uh, you know when you talk about the castle you have to build it uh, yes. By step by step. Exactly. And um, I, I'm, I'm thinking more in the financial world that these artifices uh, were being built. And yet, in some measure, if I can really mix up the metaphor, the, the mortgage mess was because there was never any castle. Right. Right. <laughs> and they were, selling, they were selling stuff on the bottom of the hill. That they um, that then got passed along, and by the time it got to the top of the hill, it didn't look at anything yes. like what it looked like at the bottom of the hill.
1: Exactly, they were selling, they were selling the possibility that Llewellyn would be able to build a three hundred, uh, you know, room hotel at the top of the hill. You know, come on, it's the 13th century. All we got to work with is bricks. You know, they were, they were selling something that was never possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. So that falls right out of my reasonable aspiration category (laughs) you know yeah and
0: and and, and I think it's interesting as we draw our conversation with Erica Anderson to a close um, the the core element of being strategic is
1: is it and this is maybe more of a sentence than you want but getting clear about where you're starting from getting clear about where you want to go clear about what's in the way and then creating that path that will get you there that's that's it simple, not easy, but simple.
0: Being strategic, plan for success, outthink your competitors, stay ahead of change. Erica Anderson, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much. And
0: now moving along to the other side of coaching, the more personal side with Susan Steinberger, her book Road Map to Success, in which she's a participant with other of America's top intellectual minds. Speaking about uh, coaching broadly uh, but with an expert in the topic, Susan Steinbrecher, my guest, this afternoon who is who has written a book um, a few years ago, Heart Centered Le- Leadership, an Invitation to Lead from the Inside Out with co-author Joel Bennett and more recently uh, is included in what I will call a compendium, that may not be fair, but Roadmap to Success, America's Top Intellectual Minds Map Out Successful Business Strategies. Her picture is on the cover of that book um, and she has a chapter dedicated to, as it says, an interview with Susan Steinbrecker. So, in, in certain measure, Susan, this is an interview based on an interview based on an interview based on the book.
2: Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> and you were recently uh, in uh, New York doing a, a piece with MSNBC. That's correct. Um, mm-hmm. About Roadmap to Success. Actually, and it was also around, about
2: it's, it's about the business show that they have on Sunday, that airs Sunday mornings. And it's really about the elevator pitch and they ask certain questions that they have um, brought forward from viewers, online questions that they want an answer to. So I did some of that and also sharing business secrets, And, and sharing business secrets. Business secrets. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed
0: when I was going through the chapter in uh, Roadmap to Success that very early on you raised something that I thought was... Um, a a telling way to start. And I'd ask you to to elaborate on it from your practice. Uh, And that is to say that while people know what they need to do, and most intelligent people will seek advice either from books or from courses Mm -hmm. or for how to, and particularly in this economy, but I want to get to that in a minute. You said that um, And I quote, what I noticed was that he wasn't putting any of this information or advice into practice. Right. So the basis of your business is in some measure, I would say, somewhat like a trainer somebody, uh, Mm a physical trainer, Mm -hmm. uh, the coaching business. But tell us what the coaching business is like today and why you are successful at it.
2: The coaching business is one of the best ways to hold somebody accountable. So in other words, what a coach, an executive coach in my case, what I do is I look at this leader's overall strengths and help them leverage those strengths. I look at their overall business or development opportunities, and we all have our strengths, we all have our opportunities as well, and start to take a look at what can we do to sort of minimize the gap with those opportunities. So, for example, if somebody um, says, you know, I need to get better at interpersonal skills. I'm not really a people person, but I'm managing a team, and that's not working so well for him or her, <laughs> right? So, the, one of the first things I ask around that is, on a scale of one to ten, where would you say you are? When you, when you talk about interpersonal skills, tell me the number. Ten being superb, one being the opposite. Where would you put yourself on the scale? And so, whatever they say to me, then I'll say, okay, if let's say seven. Okay, that's not disastrous, but at the same time, imagine what would happen for you if you could kick that up a notch or two to maybe a, an eight or a nine. And it's probably inflated at that Right, point. it probably a seven is. is probably Right, inflated. I'm a little cautious of somebody coming to me to work on an interpersonal <laughs> skill right. that says a seven to begin a nine with. to a ten, <laughs> Right. Often it's more, I'm a three or four, and I'd be thrilled if I could get myself to a seven or eight, and that's pretty doable. Coaching is something that takes time, I would assume. It does take time. I think, for me personally, what I try to do is cut to the chase as quickly as possible, because, If you need to keep hiring me, year after year, something's wrong. I mean, that's how I view that. For how long? Uh, Year after year, something's wrong. But what is your average length of stay? Six months. Okay. Six-month engagement, and that's 24 hours of time spread out over that six-month period of time. So it's not a consistent six months. It's literally 24 hours of time.
0: And most people, give a, a profile of the person who would come to you, and how do they find you?
2: Um, Two basic camps, I would say, um, in terms of the profile. I will either have the person who has been a highly successful manager for many years and all of a sudden they're hitting a wall and all the tools in their toolkit that has gotten them to where they are today is no longer working and they're beginning to derail. So that derailing leader is probably 50% of my practice. And the truth is that hurts for them, right? Here's somebody that is exasperated because it's not working anymore. And and what has changed? Well, the world has changed. And not only has the world changed, my guess is that they're probably moved into a position of more influence or maybe more responsibility or broader scope. And they have not been able to really transition well from what I call a manager to a leader. Uh, And then so they get stuck. So that's probably 50%. And you're...
0: Qu- clarify, you're really in the leadership business, not in the management. Very man- much so. Not in the management it's
2: really business. trying to help people elevate out of a management role into more of a leadership role.
0: Yeah, and, I, and that, again, goes to the trainer model. Yeah. I mean, you have somebody that you respect and who can push you mm-hmm. a little bit further exactly. than you Exactly. Hold you
2: accountable. Right. Um, have the courage to tell you the truth, yeah. which is a key competency a good coach has to have. Yeah.
0: And, 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 and tell you the truth and have you accept it. That's right. <laughs> Not um, just telling you the that's truth. That's
2: right. You know, it's like I often say to my clients, I said, okay, in the beginning when we set up and do all the contracting to, to figure out how we're going to work together, I always say to them, now here's something you may hear me say. And it's going to be, do I have your permission to tell you the truth as I see it? So when you hear that it's coming, now you can tell me no, and I'll honor that for that moment. And I'll say, okay, now may not be the time, but eventually I have to share that with you. And that's our deal.
0: Do you find that you are more often hired by an individual to help him or her or by their corporate body to help people
2: clearly 95% by the corporate body and part of it is because a lot of people are in are in business but they don't either know of a coach or they don't know that that's what they need or they don't think they have anything wrong <laughs> often so usually it's that HR person <laughs> right. or a business executive in the organization that has gone to the internal HR person and said we really need to help Johnny out over here and maybe Johnny needs a coach that's typically how it happens, and then the company pays for that right.
0: coaching as well. Yeah, and, and that shows a certain confidence in the person, too. That Absolutely. Maybe they're, they, they're getting a, they're being put on notice that, not that this is a, salve, yes, that it's salvageable. It hasn't reached the point where they're going to get right. We up, hope. but they have
2: to improve. We hope. That's right, and I say we hope because there have certainly been cases when people have come to me to say, we, we, this is our last shot. You know if this doesn't turn it around he's gone and right. I'm okay with that only if in the very beginning of the engagement all of that conversation has taken place and this client knows that
0: taking place with with, with you the there. client
2: me and the boss I say yes I do a lot of what we call the triad conversation so that all the expectations are put on the table up front the client is fully aware in a derailing situation the client is fully aware of what's at stake here that if this does not work the, the impact could be termination because if that's really how the boss feels those words have to be stated and often those words are not stated going back to what I said o- earlier about telling the truth um, so it's, that's why I won't jump into an engagement like that unless I know everybody's very clear about what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. Do you
0: make sure that you have your contract before you have the, your triad conversation? No, no. <laughs>
2: well, basically, you do all the contracting work. But I use that as a contingent point. I mean, I'll say, because I'll first talk to the boss ahead of time and say, you know, why do you want this person to go through coaching? What do you want to have happen as a result of that? And if I think the expectations are too high or, you know, let's say the person... He tells me, well, my direct report is a 2 on that 1 to 10 scale, on interpersonal scales, and I expect him to be a 10. I'm going to basically say, no, that's not going to be doable here. I mean, that's a lobotomy, and I don't do those. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, what we can do is move that from 2 to 4 or 5 if and only if this client is motivated and wants to do it. Ultimately, the client's going to decide whether they're going to do the work or not. I can guide them. You know, you've heard the term can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's Mm -hmm. exactly the scenario. So if I think there's a lot of false expectation up front, that's a setup, you know, that's not good for the client, that's not good for me, and that's not good for the boss. So I'll walk away from those engagements.
0: The the person who said she would walk away is Susan Steinbrecher, uh, the author of Heart-Centered Leadership, which led ultimately to uh, participation in another book called Roadmap to Success, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work in a conversation about how to basically improve yourself, but I'm speaking to the teacher of that improvement and shedding light on a business which is probably more important than it perhaps has ever been, Uh, much like uh, this is the paid testimonial to Classroom 24-7, a sponsor for McLaughlin at Work. And uh, if you are looking for web-enhanced tools and certification, Uh, YOU MIGHT WANT TO LOOK UP CLASSROOM 24-7 AND SEE HOW THEY MIGHT BE ABLE TO HELP YOU ONLINE. Uh, BACK TO SUSAN uh, STEINBRECHER, SEEMS TO ME THAT THAT IS PROBABLY ONE OF THE GREAT BENEFITS, IS uh, BRINGING IN AND Mm -hmm. HAVING, LET'S PUT IT ON THE TABLE.
2: THAT'S RIGHT. ABSOLUTELY. IT'S AN AUTHENTIC CONVERSATION AND A TRANSPARENT CONVERSATION. AND NOT ONLY IS THAT THE CASE BETWEEN THE COACH AND THE client throughout all the time that they're working together, again, the coach needs to tell the client the truth about what they see and what they're hearing and and what they think is getting in the way of their client. And so um, not only is it in that way, but because at least in my practice, I require the triad conversation. It really does put the issues that have never been said on the table. I, I am completely amazed at how many times because me coming in forces this conversation um, for the first time things that have never been said are being said and assumptions that have been made perhaps between those two people the boss and their employee um, are just incredible and just because you guide and facilitate that open conversation they both say things they've never said that needed to be said and often it is discovered through that process that there's been a lot of assumption and miscommunication so you bring me in in a third party scenario then all of a sudden all this stuff is coming out on the table because they feel comfortable doing so they know that i'll facilitate it make sure it stays safe it's not going to get out of line um, and I will represent really both parties. It's almost a mediation. I mean, I'm actually a licensed mediator as well. <laughs> Intervention. I mean, I really am, but um, there's times when I've, yeah, I've done mediation between two people. I mean, one in particular that comes to mind is um, between the chairman of a company and the CEO. I mean, I literally did a mediation, coached each one individually, got both ready for that third-party conversation, and then brought them both in and made sure each of them were completely heard and that the ground rules were established and followed and everything else, and it worked.
0: Stick with sex here for a minute. Right. Um, as a coach, uh, are there situations where you as a woman anticipate that you'll be more effective than others?
2: I don't know if I would anticipate I'd be more effective than others just strictly because of my sex, except, well, you know, now that I think about that, it, well, you know, you've hit a, a good point. I would say I'm more effective typically with a male than another male may be with a male. Mm-hmm. And, and, I and, s- and that's not you. Right. I mean, that's, that's that, your you I think that's in general, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. think there really is something to be said for that because I think they walk in knowing, I think they realize that they don't have some of the things that their female counterparts have. And I think you bring that to the table. I think you bring a broader perspective for that reason. So I think there is something to be said for that. Although I will tell you, I have coached many women, and it's been no problem whatsoever. But let me, um, let me
0: be specific then. In a yeah. situation where one of the two parties is a woman.
2: Meaning between the coach and the client or the boss? No, the, t- the, the,
0: the, bo- the, the, the triad The, the, situation. Yeah, the triad situation. Okay, triad. got I'm it. I'm taking you out of it for a got second. It. I would assume that in a I would assume that in a male female mm-hmm. portion of the equilateral or isosceles triangle right. depending on how it is that uh, a a woman coach would be uh, would be desirable. Mhm. Put it that way.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think there's more trust there. Yep. I think again you bring something else to the table. Um, I, de- I think You bring a different perspective, a different energy, Mm -hmm. and to your point, you are who you are, you know, your whole makeup. Now, you have to be very credible. You also have to be very professional. You have to be respected for the credentials that you bring to the table like anybody else. But I do think there's a a special dynamic there, and it works.
0: Mm -hmm. On the matter of how we are different now?
2: um it is different it is I, it that's is, the first thing different. i wanted to hear no it is i think different. you're absolutely right it's different and here's how i see it being different companies are so hesitant to spend dollars on anything <laughs> that's the first difference, right that's, that's right. really because on anything that is not an absolute as they will see it necessity for performing my business today, forget about and a year from now. It's cash out, and it's cash. And and, it, and you know, coaching can be expensive. There's yes. no question about it. Is it is expensive. It is well, expensive. It's
0: particularly expensive against spending no money. Well, that's on right. So <laughs> right.
2: Incrementally, it's well. That's hugely right. Hugely expensive. It so, may be objectively
0: right. expensive, but on the relative basis of doing nothing,
2: absolutely. And you are going to have to pay for that. So I. But here's what is interesting. So there's there's more reluctance. There's more hesitation. Um, Because, really, training and development and coaching and all those things are, what is it, the first thing cut, you know, from almost every business out there. It's
0: considered a soft skill.
2: Right. That's right. And I think where companies so miss the mark because of that is, listen, I mean, even Tiger Woods has a coach. So why do we think that the professional athlete with all of this talent coming to the table doesn't need that extra guidance, confidence, conf- confidential nature conversations, bouncing ideas off of stretch, holding accountable, uh, you know, getting them to think in a different way.
0: Change that. But we swing. don't.
2: Right, but we right, but we don't do that in business, and yet these people are responsible for multiple business units in some cases, millions and sometimes billions of dollars. But we don't think to give that person. The ammunition to help them be successful it's kind of crazy when you think of it, it that way it is and, and uh,
0: particularly i would offer is that not only is the individual changing if they're in a job for five ten fifteen years but as we know the economic landscape is changing and so that's they're differing right. the environment has changed and the individual has changed
2: and, and on top of it because of tough times they've probably downsized a number of people which means the people that are left that they think are gifted and talented that, that they want to hold on to, they probably have given them a much broader um, job, you know, they may be responsible,
0: more to do,
2: <laughs> more to do <laughs> and with less resources to do it in. So why would you not want to set this person up for success? They've, you're expanding their capability, you're giving them more responsibility. Um, their management or leadership, if you will, is impacting the bottom line at a bigger level than ever before. And yet, you're worried about your bottom line, but you're not going to actually help this person help you. It's kind of silly. Right. But that's why you guys are talking. But right. <laughs> but that's why. It, but that's what happens. That is what has happened. Is what happened. Now, I would also tell you, just recently, I, I really the month of July, I started to see a shift back that we're getting more calls than before there's more people saying you know what we've cut long enough (laughs) we were we're now feeling the pain from all that we have cut or we have not provided in terms of resources so we're beginning to see some change in that but but you're absolutely it is different it is different and hopefully we'll get back on course and i think it's beginning to get there
0: Uh, beginning to get there and as i we come to the close of my discussion with susan steinbrecher Question about your book, Heart-Centered Leadership, An Invitation to Lead from the Inside Out. Shows, a, um, in, a, in the best of ways, a, a sensitivity to leadership. Tell me about it.
2: Yeah, this is really about understanding that if you take excellent care of your associates, they will take great care of your customers, and your customers will take care of your bottom line. We often forget that who is the person delivering your product and your service it's the associate and you model every single day how you want them to treat a customer you do that how you treat them so if you can keep that in mind it that's what this book is really about it's how do I walk that path how do I make a difference in the world how do I leave a legacy that's meaningful it's not just about making money but I've actually made a difference in people's lives and you know people want to do that they aspire to do that most people do Uh, i often have an executive at age 40 to 50 saying is this all there's there is i mean this is what i've given up most of my life for it doesn't feel very rich and so building that legacy makes you feel that much more rich and i don't mean financially i mean just emotionally if you will Um, and so the seven principles that are outlined in the book help really give you the path to get there how do i lead that way
0: And why did you think of it as being heart-centered?
2: Because it really means being an authentic self, leading with transparency, leading from the heart. Um, And that's why I called it that, because it really is about use that intuition um, to guide you when you're making decisions with associates. I mean, you know deep down inside when you are enforcing a policy um, that just isn't right. (laughs) I mean, You know it. And it'll eat you up, and and it's not going to land well with those associates either. So this is about having the courage and the wisdom to really step it up there and uh, lead in a whole different way. It's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) It's not for everyone. But I'll tell you what: um, the people that I know that lead in a heart-centered way, those those associates love working with that boss. And if they love working with that boss, and they're motivated because they're tapped, on, they're tapped in and tuned in and highly engaged, then I don't know what more you can ask for in a leader to, than to have a workforce that wants to work with you to that level um, versus has to work for you. There's a big difference in those two terms. Big
0: difference. Got to go back to heart-centered That's leadership.
2: That's right. <laughs> Got to That's get right. back where we were. <laughs> uh, the two
0: books, Heart-Centered Leadership, an Invitation to Lead from the Inside Out, Susan Steinbrecher and Joel Bennett, PhD, and a more recent compendium, uh, Roadmap to Success, With Susan's picture on next to uh, Ken Blanchard and Stephen Covey, who are well-known people, as is Susan. America's top intellectual minds map out successful business strategies. Uh, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin, will work with our thanks to Susan for
2: joining us. Thank you so much.